0: Hi, today we're interviewing Dr. Molly Faulkner, a dance professor at Palomar College in New West Ballet in San Marcos. She's danced all over the world and is here (laughs) with us today to tell us about her journey as a dancer and what she's learned along the way. Hi, Molly.
1: Hello. It's nice to be here. Can you tell us a little
0: bit about yourself, a little more background?
1: I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, Um, started ballet at the age of 10, and uh, was at the same studio For eight years and that it became a semi-professional company and then it became a professional company. I was rolled in. So I never even auditioned for my first professional job. I was lucky enough to have that experience. I have been a dancer with Ballet Arizona. I did Tokyo Disneyland I was the Muppet Grover on Sesame Street Live, and I put myself through college being a cocktail waitress at a comedy club and doing Southwestern Can Can at Old Tucson, which is a Southwestern themed theme park.
0: (laughs) That is great. What brought you to teaching?
1: I finished my master's degree at the University of Iowa, and I knew I wanted to teach, and I knew that I didn't know enough to be the kind of teacher I wanted to be but that was my path. That's the first time I've really taught college students. I was a graduate teaching assistant, and I really fell in love with that population of students and uh, went to Texas Women's University for my doctorate and applied for a bunch of jobs. Ended up working at University of Northern Colorado for three years and then picked up, was very lucky to go from a tenure track job to another tenure track job at Palomar College.
0: Oh, very cool. Can you dig a little bit deeper on how you've implemented a feminist approach to your ballet, both in teaching and performing, please?
1: I think growing up in the ballet world, you realize that there is, as a professional dancer, as a woman, as a ballet dancer, you realize that you are prized for looking like everyone else. It's a very uniform look that a lot of directors are looking for. And it's a hierarchical system of court de ballet, which is where you dance with everyone else, soloist, where you have some solo roles and then principal dancer. And that is how the majority, and I would venture to say all ballet companies tend to work. And I was a corps de ballet dancer, and I learned very early on that I needed to look like everybody else in order to succeed. And I realized that perhaps the loss of identity, um, training that way, and that's the way I was trained, was to look like everybody else. And when I started teaching, I thought everybody looking uniform was a really boring way to be. and I was I didn't get enough individuality from my students. So I started, unbeknownst to me that this was called feminist pedagogy. I just started celebrating the individuality of my students when I was a graduate teaching assistant. And that led to me wanting to study more which I was introduced in my doctorate to feminist pedagogy. And so there was actually a name for what I was feeling. It was pretty liberating to discover that, that women had been thinking this for years.
0: That's great. What can male dancers or men in general learn from this approach to dancing?
1: I think the feminist moniker is a little bit misleading. I would like <laughs> to call it equalism. Okay. Simply because the femi- a feminist pedagogy really is valuing the students and what the students bring to class, creating a space for change, and having a reciprocal relationship with your students. And that is, I don't think that's predominantly woman-driven. Right. I think it's a sense of equality between students and faculty. So I would say that any faculty member who celebrates the individuality of their students and who celebrates the knowledge that the students walk into the class with, I think probably is engaging in some sort of feminist pedagogy, whether they call it that or not.
0: Okay. That's a really good way of thinking about it. What was your take on the Good Morning America story with the uh, host Laura Spencer making fun of Prince George for taking ballet since we were talking about men? I think and... she
1: had a very unfortunate slip, and the Twitterverse blew up. <laughs> I think she was just falling on old tropes and stereotypes. And she never, I don't think she understands dance. And I don't think anybody understood how quickly the ballet world would rally around Prince George. Right. I mean, it there were demonstrations in front of the Good Morning America window. <laughs> yeah. Ballet dancers came out, men came out to take class. So they, they got schooled pretty quickly. So in one way, I think it's unfortunate that Perhaps she was relying on old stereotypes, but I think in another way it really brought light to the seriousness of the training.
0: Right. I think that was the the best part about what happened there. Touch on this little bit here. How do you incorporate comedy into your performances? We heard that too. <laughs> do you do this. Um,
1: I, standing back uh, after having had a professional career and seeing how all the pieces of my life come together, when I was in college, I was working as a cocktail waitress at a comedy club. And I knew that I loved comedy. I've loved comics for years. I loved the old classic ballets that had huge comedic roles. Those were the roles that I wanted to dance. I didn't want to be a Dying Swan. I didn't want to be some tragic female figure. I loved the life and the vivacity of these comic roles. Cut to my doctorate when I have to pick a topic to write my dissertation on and comedy was the natural natural topic to study. So I studied all about the philosophy of comedy. And I find comedy to be one of the hardest things to choreograph and one of the hardest things to do well unless, and here's the caveat, I'm working with kids. When I'm working with wee ones, oh, comedy is so, so, so easy for right. me. But when I'm working with adults, it's a little bit harder.
0: It's probably easy for the kids, too. They're unimpeded by so with themselves
1: Absolutely. Too.
0: Um, You talked about your background and where you kind of went to school and how your, your teaching career, but do you want to explain or uh, go into greater detail about the places that dance and teaching has taken you elsewhere, perhaps?
1: Um, I think one of the the most influential places was the University of Arizona. Having grown up in Tucson, I did get my undergraduate there, but I ended up taking a five-year break between my freshman and sophomore year. I actually got a 1.9 GPA my freshman year, so I always tell my students that are so worried about their GPA that my bad grades did not in any way impede any of my life choices (laughs) if people have bad semesters. So uh, the University of Arizona was one of those places that really sparked my love of philosophy, sparked my love of dance history, and sparked my love of writing. The chair of the program actually grabbed me by the hand, took me to the Daily Wildcat, which was the local paper, and threw me in and said, here, here's your new dance critic. I'm like, okay. And then I went to University of Iowa, and the Daily Iowan has one of the greatest student-run newspapers. And I didn't even know that. I just waltzed right in with all the ego in the world of a very young person and said, I'm your new dance critic. And they said, Okay. Nice. I'm like wow. So uh, dance has afforded me an amazing opportunity. I got to live in Sweden for a year. I was oh, teaching yes. um, in Strängnäs and Eskilstuna and um, Strängnäs, Eskilstuna, and I'm forgetting another one. Um, I was taking class with the Royal Swedish Ballet in Stockholm. I learned about socialism there, which was a huge eye-opening experience. So I credit dance with um, a lot of my travel.
0: Do you think there's a difference in how people approach or think about dance between, like, the United States and some of these other countries?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And if you know anything about dance history, a lot of the people who could not find um, professional satisfaction in the United States would go over to Europe and people would love them. Isadora Duncan got great great fame in Europe that she wasn't getting in the United States. Louis Falco, who choreographed the original Fame movie, was an amazing choreographer, and he was well accepted in Europe. Um, in the 1940s and 50s, a lot of African-American performers, including Raven Wilkinson, had to go to Europe mm-hmm. so because of the racism. So I think that the United States, while it does a lot of things well, Europe has such a rich culture of the arts that I think uh, a lot of, of dancers Find success in Europe, so I think, yeah. Don't get me started on the <laughs> NBA. <laughs>
0: All right, cool. That's very interesting. Um, let's see. What was your most memorable personal performance that you've had, not as a teacher, but as your own personal?
1: Performance. As a performer, I have to admit, I'm drawn to the character roles. I'm drawn to. Um, the darker roles, actually, and there, uh, Ernie Horvath choreographed a piece called Laura's Women. It was based, uh, it was to the music of Laura Nero, who was a very famous, uh, I think she's, she's still singing, but she had a lot of great hits in the 70s and 80s. And it was uh, looking at a very young woman, uh, her journey through drugs, and then her her coming out of her drug usage. And it was a series of three solos. And I got to do the middle solo, which was Poverty Train. And it was basically a trip of heroin addiction. And wow. that piece, because it was so dark and needed such a commitment to the movement to read, was probably one of my all-time favorite pieces. And then I love the comedy roles, so doing The Saucy Waitress in Guyoté Parisienne and doing The Grandmother in Nutcracker, love the comedy roles. But for, for some reason, Laura's Women stays with me as a really kind of profound turning point. Great.
0: Thanks. This may overlap with the other questions, but maybe it won't. What was your most challenging performance?
1: <laughs> um, Well, it depends on choreographer or... uh, Uh, You pick. One of the most challenging things is I was getting my undergraduate. um, I had danced with Ballet Arizona, which was up in Phoenix. I was going to school in Tucson. And in Nutcracker, they have a cast of angels. They, the company came down to Tucson, and so there was a Tucson cast of the little kids. And so I was working with the Tucson cast of the little kids. And I had two parents basically break out into almost a fist fight. They were screaming at each other in a rehearsal because of where their kids were placed in line. I think oh, they man. felt that I wasn't... I don't have any idea. I literally had to tell these parents to take it outside. I'm like, really? In the ballet studio? You guys are going to duke it out? So that was that.
0: Everybody's kid's the best. <laughs> <laughs> You're not, yep. What kind of conditioning and commitment does it take to be a dancer, more specifically a performing and professional dancer?
1: Agnes DeMille would say that it takes 10 years to become a dancer, meaning it takes 10 years of committed, committed study to become a dancer. Um, typically, if you want to get better at dance, you have to take two, particularly ballet, because that's really what my expertise is in, but you have to take at least two technique classes a day. You have to be performing with a company, um, cross-training, weight training, Pilates, Alexander technique, some of your other somatic work. It is a dedicated, it's a full-time dedicated experience. Um, It's very hard to become successful, especially if you want to be a professional dancer, if you are only dancing part-time.
0: Yeah, that applies to musicianship and pretty much everything. You got to put in the time. Here's a question that is seemingly technical for me. Why is it important to use the approximate attachment of the hamstring? (laughs)
1: I couldn't I'm even sorry, say I it. sorry. I didn't mean to blow out the sound on that one. The proximal attachment of the hamstring. Thank you, Memo. Um, the proximal attachment of the hamstring is where uh, it's the closest to the center line of the body where the hamstring comes up and hits through what we call the sits bones or what we call the ischial tuberosity. Um, it is right. It's the butt smile. It's right underneath your butt. And one of the things that that does is it stabilizes the pelvis. And I attended uh, an amazing presentation by a woman named Shani Robson, who is a professor of dance at Brigham Young University. And she talked about the proximal attachment. She had a a student, video of a student who she taught a ballet variation, came back and did 10 minutes of work on the proximal, engaging the proximal attachment of the hamstring. And then we saw another performance of this variation within the same day. And the stability, uh, the marked difference in the artistry and stability because of the engagement of that really profoundly affected me. She we laugh all the time because that was that presentation was ten years ago, and we still look at each other and go, "Hey, proximal attachment of the hamstring." So it's become the path to good ballet. Proximal attachment of the hamstring.
0: All right, now pathway. now that I can say it, I actually know what it is too. <laughs> That's great. Uh, it kind of relates to that. What impact do you think the new technical advances will have on the future of dance?
1: I think it's going to be really interesting. I think we are – I remember being years and years ago at the University of Iowa when we were just – we had – we were collaborating with Japan and there was a musical ensemble that was playing and we were dancing and they were streaming the music and there was like a four or five second lag time, but we were actually dancing to their playing and that was cutting edge technology. And I think technology nowadays is amazing. I know that UT Austin and the uh, Arizona State University have smart stages and they're working with holograms and dancing with holograms. So I think there's a lot of room for some Interesting collaboration with technology, Um, even to the point where dance classes are now being taught virtually and you can hire a teacher to stream in and teach your class and somebody's moving the camera around. I'm not so sure about that. Early days, right? Early days, but it's it's there. So let's take advantage of it. Merce Cunningham was a cutting edge choreographer And he was the first one to have a computer program that generated movement. So Dance and Technology is a time-honored kind of collaboration.
0: That's great. Do you have any advice for somebody like myself who doesn't know how to dance and maybe wants to be interested in learning or where to go to where to start?
1: Absolutely. I think community colleges, plug for community colleges, I think hey. community colleges are a really great place, especially for adults to learn how to dance because every community college has beginning level courses and you're not trying to dance with six year olds. If you go to a ballet studio and you take a beginning course that's not designated as an adult course, you are going to be dancing with the little ones and that can be a little uncomfortable, although they're fun. I have to admit, I, I, I can teach 10 year olds on once a week and I love them. But I think community colleges are a great place to start.
0: What about people who are maybe kind of just uh, in a state of not being able to progress forward and is there any kind of advice you could give to the struggling dancer
1: I think if you find the right Teacher. Not every teacher is going to be right for you. And once you find a teacher who can motivate you, who is talking in a language that you understand and using images that work for you, I think shop around. Don't be afraid to take it from as many different teachers as you can. And sometimes you learn what you don't want. Hmm. And that is equally as important. All right. So, I think just take from as many teachers as you can, see as much dance as you can, just immerse yourself in it. All
0: right. That sounds like great advice. Um, do you have anything you want to say that we didn't cover in the questions? Uh...
1: No, I'm just happy to be here. Well, it's we're been very a lot happy to
0: have you. Uh, do you have any uh, website or email address if anybody wanted to reach out to you at all? Or... Uh,
1: M Faulkner, so M F A U L K N E R at palomar.edu. I know it's the other college, but. Mm. Hey, um, So, you can always support. get a hold of me there. I don't have my own personal website, but palomarperforms.com. There's information about the dance program there and uh, our season.
0: Thank you very much. All right, we want to thank uh, Dr. Molly Faulkner for coming in today. We had a great uh, session with you. Great stuff. Well, thank, thank you so very much. much. This episode was produced by Memo Oloza, hosted by Brand Inman, recorded by Daniel DeHaven, Joey Furlett, Kelly Barnett. Fran Carrasco and Kurt Craigie. Edited by Kelly Barnett, Memo Oloza, and Brand Inman. Artwork by Fran Carrasco.
1: Music for this episode is provided by Kelly Barnett.